Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. On this show, Dave returns to Derry and Tom to pick up the second half of the third instalment in the history of the Rune Staff, the tale of Dorian Hawkmoon, Duke of Colne's ongoing quest to gather the tools to defeat his archenemy, Baron Melidas of Croydon, and the Dark Empire of Grand Britain, and drive them back from their campaign of terror in the devastated Europe of the tragic millennium. So get your wafters on, feed your mutant war jaguars, select an appropriate libation, and join us as we take a look at The Sword of the Dawn, Book 2. We're back in Derry and Tom's, and Dave's back. Welcome back, Dave. Here I am. Yes. And yes. we are back to cover Sword of the Dawn, part two. And, you know, it could have been a longer period of time between meals, and it could have been a short period of time between meals. I think this is probably quite a nice a nice gap between meals when it comes to Sword of the Dawn. And what a tasty, yet interesting, and sometimes quite frustrating meal it is. But before Indeed. we crack on... Some points to consider, and a couple are thanks to listeners, so I'm just going to read these out and we'll see what we think. Damnation Warrior on Twitter said, It struck me whilst listening to the podcast that the Hawkmoon books resemble an early 16th century stroke 40 years war situation, with poets as accustomed to fencing as writing. Not considered this before today. Cheers. So that's nice that someone has some thoughts based upon our discussions. What's your take on that? Archaeologist, after all, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I got to agree. I mean, especially it's interesting, too, because at, at one point during this, um, you know, there there's some sort of mention of the the elaborate decorations that are all over Grand Britain and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm seeing like a lot of like Art Nouveau when I'm picturing this just because, A, I love that style and B, it just seems kind of appropriate, you know, psychedelic and far out and trippy. So definitely yeah. like. And again, this is kind of one of those things that Moorcock does so well is he just – one sentence and you can just imagine like, okay, well, Grand Britain, obviously they have their, you know, uh, human on animal orgies and stuff going mm. on. But also they must have all kinds of great artists and architects and, yeah. you know, almost like a crazy renaissance period to create their insane weird world, which we, at least in the first part of this, get like a nice little kind of – glimpse at um as opposed to many of the other locations that you know hawk moon and divert travel to and this is definitely a travelogue book at this part Mm -hmm. we're in full-on quest mode and you know so it's it's, it keeps going but uh yeah that's definitely i think a very good point tozer um forgot his first name tozer obviously he's a fencing Mm. poet playwright with a hideous face and um Almost as good a swordsman as Hawkmoon. So, yeah, I, I think that's a very good kind of uh, comparison there. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to it. You know, you've got Count Brass's tired recollections in The Jewel in the Skull about Europe before the Grand Britannian invasion. It was very 30 years war in terms of political makeup, while you've got Grand Britain waiting on the sidelines to take advantage of those weakened nations and city-states and basically spending all the time creating mad works of art and you know, as he said, fucking beasts and each other, or or getting their own servants to strangle them whilst they're wanking themselves or whatever they're doing. And the, I think the tech level 
in Europe, you know, the pre-tragic millennium weird science stuff notwithstanding. It's probably a mixture of that and Hundred Years' War, Medieval Knights and Plate Armour. But if we've had a 30-year war and a 100-year war, then perhaps the tragic millennium was the 1,000-year war. You know, you can read it uh, a number of ways, but all that stuff is really in there. And uh, Damnation Warrior also added that the references to Poison Air and Abandoned Cities also give a feel of the devastation from the Black Death. Yeah. And I think that's uh, a really good point as well. I think that's why Tragic Millennium Europe is such a great setting, because it does draw on a basic level of awareness that we have so it feels more grounded and tangible. Yeah. It's not having to create a brand new world. And for me, the Young Kingdoms always feel slightly sketchy by comparison, despite probably, again, arguably, having more pages devoted to it. But also a massive fist bump for a Damnation Warrior. He also agrees on the Apaches versus Ornithopsis issue. So big fist bump to a Damnation Warrior. The second one is uh, Jacob Patton-Inman, a.k.a. Smeorgan Baldhead, said via Instagram, Oi, smashing episode this week. I too did not have very fond memories of Sword of the Dawn, but you and Dave's enthusiasm for the first part reminded me that I actually did enjoy that section quite a bit. Hmm, I'll probably agree with that. Stay tuned to see what we see. think about part two. Yep. But uh, <laughs> he has posed a question to us. He says, uh, so often we hear about the possibility of a Hawkmoon struck history of the Runestaff TV series or movie or what have you. But he said, I would agree with your sentiments that Hawkmoon himself is a bit wooden and uninteresting. Do you hope that a possible film struck TV adaptation would beef up the character to make him more layered? Or would it get by by having a colourful supporting cast? What do you think? I think, honestly, I think that we kind of get a bit of that actually in this book because this whole part two is pretty much Hawkmoon and Diverk having little misadventures across dimensions and things like that. Um, yeah. And I think that Diverk is a fun character. You know, he's a mm -hmm. good, you know, he plays off of Hawkmoon's usual kind of seriousness and stuff like that. Um, and I think you could have something and i think that is kind of a formula that we have seen before especially in movies and film you know you have like the straight man and then you have you know the more kind of wacky i mean i you know i, I wouldn't i would i just want to say i would hate to see divert turn into a typical wacky sidekick but yeah. you know what i mean just someone who's a bit more colorful a bit more witty and stuff like that while the hero is being the hero so i think that could completely work if they weren't to change it too much i also think I don't know if you got like just just a good enough actor who had enough kind of presence. I feel like Hawkmoon would have to have like a good amount of of, of presence and yeah, you know, to to kind of carry that. Because if you're if if you're that wooden and if you're that kind of uninteresting and you don't have presence, then it's gonna fall flat. You know. Yeah. So yeah. it's gonna be like someone who really has like an intensity to them. I think. Yeah, you need an innate smouldering charisma yeah. on the part of the guy who's going to play that part, don't you? Yeah. Um, because that really doesn't leap off the page, that Hawkmoon has that uh, smouldering charisma. My preference certainly would be that they keep Hawkmoon as is, as you point out, get someone with real presence to play him, but then play up the relationship with Deverk because it's the beating heart of it all once Deverk actually comes on the scene, of course, because he doesn't arrive particularly quickly. TV and film adaptations have a terrible habit of merging characters or creating overt comedic sidekicks. Probably the most egregious example of that is the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie, where the, <laughs> oh, where the cast Ro Rob Schneider as a comedy sidekick. Yep. 
and which was one of the worst things I've ever seen on screen, particularly given that the character that he played was named for a character in the comic, but bore no similarity whatsoever to the character in the comic. And, you know, they do that to... They often merge characters as well to accomplish certain plot goals. But fortunately, unlike something like Game of Thrones or The Expanse, where that's happened quite a lot, uh, there aren't actually that many players involved in the history of the Rune staff, except maybe on the Grand Britannian side. So if this series ever did emerge, which now we know it probably won't because BBC handed the rights back and there's now an Eternal Champion TV series in the works at Apple TV... Wonder if the writer's strike will, will, will shit can that. We just don't know. Oh. Um, maybe they would have amalgamated Grand Britannian characters. But later in the saga, as well, of course, Hartman being a misery guts with all new traumas is a massive part of the deal. So you need to set off with that character being the trauma- traumatized mess that he is. It's, it's a core part of the character. But find someone with that smoldering charisma to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, the third point. This isn't something that um, a listener pointed out, but it suddenly dawned on me when I went to bed after we recorded the last one. We were thinking, who is London Jean? And we couldn't... We're always thinking when we read these books, there are references and names, names of characters and places which probably have some kind of real-world analogue. And, of course, it was a nod to Langdon Jones, assistant editor at New Worlds, um, sci-fi author and musician. <clears throat> and he's also the guy, after I looked him up a little bit more, restored... Um, Mervyn Peaks, Titus alone, and he was Mocock's best mate for a while. And uh, sadly, he passed away in 2021. So I shall raise a glass to Langdon Jones. To you. Yeah. And there was uh, there was one other thing as well, which has popped up over the last week or so. And this is actually about our last episode when we were talking about the lineage of Mocock role-playing games. Robert Prince pointed out that we failed to mention the Hawkmoon monograph, which was published as part of Chaosium's monograph line written by Lars Whitaker. So that will differ somewhat to the other versions because, of course, Kiri Campbell Robson wrote the original Chaosium box set and Gareth Hanrahan wrote the uh, Mongoose version. So it'd be really interesting to read the Lars Whitaker monograph, which I think runs to about 80 or 90 pages. But unfortunately, I looked and tried to get hold of a copy. It's like rocking our shit. So if anybody out there has got a copy, you'll have to let us know what it's like to... Anyway, that's uh, that's those little points out of the way. We're up to The Sword of the Dawn Part 2. And much like Mad God's Amulet, this book is nicely split in two. It's not a three-parter on this occasion, it's a two-parter, so we will be covering this book to its conclusion. So we'll have to think about the story so far. But fortunately, in book two, at the beginning, we've got a nice paragraph from the High History of the Rune Staff that essentially summarises where we are. And it says, As Dorian Hawkmoon served the Rune Staff... So had Maigan of Hlandar, though knowingly, and the philosopher of Yell had seen fit to deposit Hawkman in a strange, unfriendly land, giving him little information, in order, as he saw it, to further the Runestaff's cause. So many destinies were interlinked now. The Camargues with Grand Britannes, Grand Britannes with Asia Communista, Asia Communistas with Amarek, Hawkmoons with Deverks, Deverks with Flanners, Flanners with Meliduses, Meliduses with King Juans, King Juans with Shenagatrots, Shenagatrots with Hawkmoons. So many destinies weaving together to do the Runestaff's work, which was begun when Meliduses swore upon the Runestaff his great oath of vengeance against the inhabitants of Castle Brass, and thus set the pattern of events. Paradoxes and ironies were all apparent in the fabric, would become increasingly clearer to those whose fates were woven into it. And while Hawkman wondered where he was placed in time or space, 
King Horn's scientists perfected more powerful war machines that helped the armies of Grand Britain spread faster and further across the globe to stain the map with blood. Ooh. That's a fair summary, I think. Anything you would add to that, to uh, position us where we are at the moment? I mean, apart from the fact that the old Welsh wizard Margan of Landar is dead, it didn't survive the escape from the Grand Britannian goons, sadly. But that's pretty much a good summary. Got to agree. I mean, there's no mention of, you know, Grand Britannian bestiality anywhere in there, unfortunately. But, you know, I I guess we'll just move on from that. Yeah. <laughs> and sadly, we don't get any in book two either, yeah. do we? There is, there is nary a Grand Britannian to be had in this book. We're in full on adventure time. That's it. Mm. And uh we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna talk about Adventure Time, the cartoon, shortly, because <laughs> the first chapter of this book is like an episode of Adventure Time. It really is. And it made me wonder, do the people who write Adventure Time, are any of them Mocock readers? <laughs> because individual episodes of Adventure Time, the adventures of the boy whose name I forget and Jake is, is Jake and, and his shape-shifting dog. Whose name I forget. Or is Jake the dog? Can't remember. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. But they have these these crazy adventures. There are all sorts of jokes. In it. There are Dungeons and Dragons gags, all sorts of things. But this is just like an episode of Adventure Time. So Hawkmoon and Devark are on a strange landscape with a weird crackling orb rolling towards them. That's how book one ended. I'm going to read page 81. Now, chapter one starts for me... In my book on page 81. How about yours? Also page 81. Oh, that will make life so right? much easier. Oh, isn't that yeah. beautiful? Yeah. And once again, I'm reading from my book with, frankly, a cover that I'm not particularly fond of, Naked Hawkmoon Fighting Tentacle Beat. I will say, though, we gave that cover a lot of shit on the last episode, but finally, finally, soon, very shortly, that cover of Hawkmoon, Naked Hawkmoon Fighting Tentacle Beast will actually make sense. And yes, I was wrong. It is in the book, and we will get there soon. Yeah. We will get the context. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. We'll have to wait till pretty much the very end, but we will get there. So let's have a look. Hawkmoon and Devark watched the strange sphere approach and then wearily drew their swords. They were in rags, their bodies all bloody, their faces pale with the strain of the fight, and there was little hope in their eyes. Ah, uh, I could do with the amulet's power now, said Hawkmoon of the Red Amulet, which, on the warrior's advice, he had left behind at Castle Brass. We, we were questioning we were, that last time round, weren't we? Like, Where's that fucking choice. amulet when he needs Good it? Good lord, and here yeah, it is. Yeah. Mocock rolls off his speed toilet binge <laughs> and, and remembers, oh yeah, there was a plot hole there, I'd better, better paper over that. Deverk smiled wanly. I could do with some ordinary mortal energy. Still, we must do our best, Duke Dorian. He straightened his shoulders. The thundering sphere came closer, bouncing over the turf. It was a huge thing, full of flashing colours, and there was no question of swords being useful against it. It rolled to a halt with a dying, growling noise, and stopped close by, towering over them. Then it began to hum, and a split appeared at its centre, widening out until it seemed the sphere would split in two. From it now appeared white, delicate smoke that drifted in a cloud to the ground. The cloud now began to disperse, and a tall, well-proportioned figure was revealed, his long fair hair held from his eyes by a silver coronet, his bronzed body clad in a short divided kilt of light brown colour. He appeared to have no weapons. Now, we could read the next bit, but it, it refers to this guy having a strange accent. 
so I'm not even going to bother trying to fight with um, putting on a strange accent. My whole accent is strange enough. Maybe my whole accent would do it, but Devax already got a whole accent, so I don't think we could really go for <laughs> and that. Hawkmoon's American. But in summary, nothing, nothing makes sense here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In summary, the dude in the globe, which is a pretty comfy travel machine, is Zanak Teng of Camp Teng. And he doesn't give too much away at this stage, but he offers them a lift to his place and suggests, to their surprise, that he might be able to revive Mygan and warns them of the Charky. Mm. Now, the Charky are definitely an adventure time beastie, but the travel sphere arrives an hour or so later at Camp Teng, sinking through the earth to what is a pretty swish underground home of the Teng clan. We won't put any Wu-Tang clan jokes in. But it's pretty high-tech. But the Tang family medics can't revive Mygan, unlucky Mygan, but they can heal Hawkmoon and Devek's wounds and lay on a pretty fine dinner. And, uh, yeah, I think we are going to have to read a little bit, aren't we? They inspected Hawkmoon's and Devek's wounds and applied dressings. Very shortly, the two men began to feel improved. Now you must tell me how you came to the land of the camps, Zenek Tang said. We have few strangers on our plane because of the Charky. You must tell me of events in other parts of the world. I'm not sure that you would understand the answer to your first inquiry, or that we can help you with news of our world. And he explained as best he could how they had come here and where their world was. Zenak Tang listened with careful attention. Aye, he said. You are right. I can understand little of what you tell me. I have never heard of any Europe or Grand Britain and the device you describe is not known to our science. But I believe you. How else could you have turned up so suddenly in the land of camps? What are the camps? Deverk asked. You said they were not cities. So, they are not. They are family houses belonging to one clan. In our case, the underground house belongs to the Tang family. Other nearby families are the On, the Sek, and the Neng. Years ago there were more, many more. But the Charky found them, and destroyed and them. And what are the Charky? The Charky are our age-old enemies. They were created by those who once sought to destroy the houses of the plane. That enemy destroyed himself ultimately with some kind of explosive experiment. But his creatures, the Charky, continue to wander the plane. They have unwholesome means of defeating us, so that they may feed off our life energy. Zanik Tang shuddered. They feed off your life energy, Dvark said with a frown. What is that? Whatever gives us life. Whatever life is, they take it and leave us drained. Useless. Dying. Slowly. Unable to move. Hawkman began another question, then changed his mind. Evidently the subject was painful to Zanak Tang. Instead he asked, And what is this plane? It does not seem natural to me. It is not. It was once the site of our landing fields, for we of the one hundred families were once mighty and powerful until the coming of he who created the Charky. He wanted our artifacts and our sources of power for himself. He was called Shenatav Ronkenzai, and he brought the Charky with him from the east, their vocation being entirely to destroy the families, and destroy them they did, save for the handful that still survives. But gradually, through the centuries, the Charky sniffed them out. You seem to have no hope, said Tverk, almost accusingly. We are merely realistic, Zenak Teng replied, without rancor. Tomorrow we should like to be on our way. Have you maps, something that will help us reach Narleen? I have a map, though it is crude. Narleen used to be a great trading city on the coast. That was centuries ago. I do not know what it has become, 
I will show you to the room I have prepared for you. There you may sleep tonight and begin your long journey in the morning. Hmm. Lots and lots of information there. Now we know, because we've read this, that they are in the fabled Amarek. Although at this stage, Hartman de Verk, I think, believe they're in Asia Communist. And with the names, I mean, I don't think... it's kind of a kind of a yeah. throw off there. Worth discussing that. Narlene, New Orleans. Now, Shenatav Ron Kensai. Any thoughts on that one? It almost sounds like Shenagar Trot. Well, I'm thinking Shenatar is probably uh, an expansion of Senator, maybe. Mm, interesting. So I'm thinking, was there some Senator character, some contentious Senator character in that area of America in the late 60s? And funnily enough, I came across a review of the Runestaff series in an old fanzine called Luna, issue 8. And the reviewer, a guy called Thomas W. Boomer, reckons that Shenatar one is obvious, right? So I'm just going to very quickly read his oh, no. review, and we'll see what we make of Interesting. it. Interesting. Okay, so let's have a look. Now, it doesn't actually help with who the fuck Shenatar <laughs> is, but what does he say? He says, and I'll fill you in a little bit more on this lunar fanzine shortly. So his review says, and there are a couple of contentious points in here for me, says... The first books of the Runestaff Tetralogy, The Jewel in the Skull and Sorcerer's Amulet, of course, Mad God's Amulet in America, the Lancer edition was Sorcerer's Amulet, are worth reading, but not particularly necessary for reading these last two books. Those of you who have settled and negative opinions about the New World's brand of SF may be pleasantly surprised by this series. It has genuine, honest-to-goodness heroes comparable to the type Sprague de Camp writes so well about. So for a start, it was slightly contentious. He said, yeah, this is good. It's a bit like Sprague de Camp. <laughs> not sure about that. And the villains are really bad. I think he means bad as in evil. Unfortunately, the villainy of the Grand Britannians, while described in rich and loving detail, is never really made plausible. So maybe he means bad as in rubbish. Mm. I don't know. The last two books abandon a lot of what strikes me as pointless characterization to concentrate on the adventures of Dorian Hawkmoon and his companion, William de Verk and on the intrigues of Grand Britain. The sorcery is all supposed to be super science, some imported from out there, such as the runestaff itself. As one might expect, it is not handled very well. Only Tarragorm's 50-ton pendulum, merrily swishing back and forth, is really bad. Oh, really? I'm sorry, Thomas Bulmer. I think... Oh, no, I'm thinking of Kenneth Bulmer. Anyway, some of the offhand remarks are quite tantalising. It was, in what strange manner did Meliodas' sister have her slaves slaughter her? And some of the names, Aral Wilson, is Harold Wilson, Narlene, is New Orleans, Amarek, Asia Communista, Grand Britain, and even Shenatav von Kensai are all obvious. But can Denark be Denmark? What are Skvies and Blansacre did? How does a Duke of Colne end up with a name like Dorian Hawkmoon? Anyway, now that is a good question. Read and enjoy. <laughs> that is a fair question so he doesn't like the villains he, th he doesn't think they're plausible but what the most interesting thing he says there is that Shenatav Ron Kensai is obvious we Not are men out of time <laughs> yeah listeners if anybody can put us out of our misery on that one answers on a postcard please so anyway Luna um, also known as Weird Tales Creator was a science fiction fanzine that ran in a couple of forms from the early 60s and on through the 70s edited by Frank and Anne Dietz. And the only reason I know this is because they're available, all 67 issues as scanned PDFs on a website called fanac, F-A-N-A-C dot org. 
And that is an absolutely incredible treasure trove of science fiction fanzines dating right back to the 1930s. It's absolutely wow. incredible. There are hundreds, possibly thousands of scanned fanzines. It's amazing. But fair warning, it's a rabbit warren and an absolute time sink. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't recommend looking at it if you're interested in it, but you don't have much time on your hands because you'll be there forever. Yeah. Anyway, chapter two, the Charky. For all that Moorcock talks about his approaches to fiction and when you see interviews with him, how literary and deep he is in his discussions about the form of fantastic fiction. Sometimes he just loves writing three or four pages of absolutely banging horrific oh, yeah. action. <laughs> and this is a really, really good example. And it still appeals to the 13-year-old in me whilst still managing to placate the more adult and perhaps more critical side of me today. And this is just a, a really, really great chapter. But funnily enough, going back to that website, and I'm not sponsored by him because there is no money involved, <laughs> but... One of the other things I came across was an old fanzine that I had a glance at. I found a 1959 article Moorcock wrote for issue five of Vector. And he wrote an article called SF for Junior. So he's writing this in 59. At the time, he's probably 18 or 19. And he's writing this article about how interested he is in genre fiction like science fiction as packaged for juveniles. Mm. And it's... Really, really interesting, because at this stage, when he's writing this, this is less than 10 years later, so he's probably only 28 or 29 when he's writing this. No matter how much he's attempting to stretch the form in his mad speed binge, speed binge writing sessions, he's still writing instinctively, and often his chief instinct is to write to thrill. And this is a really, really thrilling chapter. It's got violent deaths, mind control weapons, tentacled monsters straight out of weird tales, but unlike Weird Tales, with his style involved, there's none of that eldritch, sanity-shattering nonsense language that bogs these things down. It's super exciting and super on one from, from the very That's moment right. it kicks off. Swords versus tentacle monsters, the chapter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just 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 give it to us. And uh, it says, Hartmoon awoke to the sounds of battle. He wondered for a moment if he had dreamed and he was back in the cave and Deverk was still engaged with Baron Malidus. He sprang from his bed, reaching for the sword that lay on a nearby stool with his tattered clothes. He was in the room where Zenak Tang had left them the previous night, and on the other bed, Deverk was awake, his features startled. Hartman began to struggle into his clothes. From behind the door came yells, the clash of swords, strange whining sounds and moans. When he was dressed, he went swiftly to the door and opened it a crack. He was astonished. The bronzed, handsome folk of Ten Camp were busily at work trying to destroy one another. And it was not swords, after all, that were making the clashing sound, but meat cleavers, iron bars, and a weird collection of domestic and scientific tools utilised as weapons. Snarls, bestial and alarming, were on all faces, and firm flat lips, while eyes stared madly. Some insanity possessed them all. So it's super violent. It's all going to shit. They make their way through the throng in violence and find Zanek in his apartments, and he's beside his himself with war because this is the work of the Charky. And this is really, really vivid stuff. You know, the idea that all these guys who who are all family are all wide-eyed and kind of biting and stabbing and kicking and and brutalizing each other because of some weird mind control weapon. It's really, really, um, it's really quite 
uh, distressing in a way, if you allow it to, yourself to absorb yourself in the detail. But Hawkman ponders for a moment whilst he's discussing with Zanak Tang. He came to a decision, raised his sword, and struck swiftly. When I read that first time, I thought, oh, yeah, good, but I was misery. But the following sentence says, the pommel connected with the base of Zanak Tang's skull, and he now collapsed. Let's get him to the sphere, hurry. Coffin, as the blue smoke grew thicker, they stumbled from the room and into the passages, carrying Zanak Tang's unconscious body between them. Hartman remembered the way to the place where they had left the sphere, and directed Deverk. Now the whole passage shook alarmingly until they were forced to stop to keep their balance. Then, the wall! It's crumbling! Howled Deverk, staggering back. Quick, Hartmoon! We must the get other to the way. spear! We must go on! Now pieces of the ceiling began to fall, and a grey stone-like thing crept through the crack of the wall and into the passage. On the end of the thing was what resembled a sucker such as an octopus would possess, moving like a mouth seeking to kiss them. Hawkmoon shuddered in horror and stabbed at the thing with his sword. It recoiled, then, pouting a little, as if only a trifle offended by his gesture and willing to make friends, it advanced again. That's not no. Lovecraft language, is it? That's a much, that's an entirely different language for a tentacled h- horror. This time Hartman chopped at it and there was a grunt and a shrill hiss from the other side of the room. The creature seemed surprised that something was resisting it. Heaving Zanak Tang onto his shoulder, Hartman struck another blow at the tentacle, then leapt over it and began to race down Come the crumbling Come on, Devak, to the spear! Devak skipped over the wounded tentacle and followed. Now the wall gave way altogether and it revealed a mass of waving arms, a pulsing head and a face that was a parody of human features, grinning a placatory idiot's grin. It wants us to pet it, Devert cried with grim humour as he avoided a reaching tentacle. Would you hurt its feelings so, Hawkmoon? Hawkmoon was busy opening the door that led to the chamber of the sphere. Zenak Tang, who lay on the floor next to him, was beginning to moan and clutch his head. Hawkmoon got the door open, hefted Zenak Tang onto his shoulder again, and passed through into the chamber where the sphere lay. No noise came from it now, and its colours were muted but it was open, sufficient to admit them. Hartman climbed the ladder and dumped Zanak Tang in the control seat. Get this thing moving, giant. or we'll all be devoured by the charky you see there. He pointed with his sword to the giant thing that was squeezing its way through the doors of the chamber. Several tentacles crept up the side of the sphere towards them. One touched Zanak Tang lightly on the shoulder and he moaned. Hartman yelled and chopped at it. It flopped to the floor, but others were now waving all around him and had fastened on the bronze man who seemed to accept the touch with complete passivity. Hartman and Devert screamed at him to get the sphere moving while they hacked desperately at the dozens of webbing limbs. Hartman reached out with his left hand to grasp the back Close of Zanak Tang's Close the spear, Tang! Close the spear! With a jerky movement, Zanak Tang obeyed, depressing a stud which made the sphere murmur and hum and begin to glow with all kinds of colours. The tentacles tried to resist the steady motion of the walls as the aperture closed. Three leapt through Devert's defence and fastened themselves on Zanak Tang, who groaned and went limp. Again, Hartman slashed at the tentacles as the sphere finally closed and began to rise upwards. One by one, the tentacles disappeared, but Zanak Tang stared dully ahead of him, his arms limp at his sides. It is no good, he said slowly. It has taken my life. And he slumped to one side, falling to the floor. Hartman bent beside him, putting his hand to the man's chest to feel his heartbeat. He shuddered in horror. He's cold, the Virk. Incredibly and cold. Does he live? He is entirely dead. <laughs> That's just, that's just su- such a weird line. <laughs> he is entirely dead. Yeah. He is entirely he's not dead. sort of dead. He's not partially yeah. dead. He's entirely dead. Yeah. So the ton off in the sphere, but Hawkman could only stare it in the crash into a forest. 
It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, chapter three, the Sayu River, starts with a perfect heart moon moment. A perfect heart moon moment. The sphere struck the trees with a sound of snapping wood and tortured metal. Deverk and Hawkman found themselves flung to the far side of the control chamber, keeping company with the unpleasantly cold corpse of Zenak Teng. Next they were flung upwards, then sideways, and had not the walls of the sphere been well padded, they would have died of broken bones. As the sphere rolled to a halt, rocked for a few moments, then suddenly split apart, tumbling Hawkman and Deverk to the ground. Deverk groaned, What an unnecessary experience for one so weak as myself! Hawkman grinned, partly at his friend's drollery, partly in relief. Well, we've escaped more easily than I dared hope. Rise up, Deverk, we must strike on. Strike for the south. I think a rest is called for. Oh, you've, got, you've just got to love it. You've got to love it. But they reflect on their fortune that the sphere was sufficient protection in the crash, and you get a really, really interesting part where Hawkmoon shows a level of impact of the trauma, and and he, he, he surveys the crash site and sits and shakes like someone would after just experiencing an enormous crash that's a really interesting moment of kind of sensitivity on the part of Hawkman that you don't see very often turns out Deverk has got the map from Zenak Tang yeah. so that's good so after a kip on what appears to be a fairly pleasant pine forest that seems much unlike the twisted wormwoods of Europe there's a really nice description of this pine smelling forest the strikeout for Narlene, but of course it's a it's a Mocock travelogue, so they've got to have they've got to have monster of the chapter, the encounter of river monster that at first I thought might be the source of my the source of the cover of my edition of this book, and I thought is that because I've been thinking are they Charky because Charky have tentacles, is this river monster is that what they are either way I still don't know why Hot Moon is butt naked on the cover so that can't be it or is it just artistic interpretation that he likes his heroes naked, well. As you say, we find out at the end, that isn't this moment in time. Yeah, the getaway, build a raft, and Hartmoon nope. rather charmingly commits to building uh, a raft and teaching Deverk how to fish. That's quite nice. Seriously, other than that nice little character moment at the, at the beginning, a little bit of filler, this chapter. I'm wondering if Mike, at this point, was starting to get gouch a bit. Yeah. You know, he'd had his, his mad um, crescendo last night, and it's the early hours of the morning. This does feel a little bit like filler. Yep, giant reptilian monster comes, lashes a tongue at them, they fight it, Hawkmoon, one important thing, Hawkmoon throws a sword into its eye and then it runs away, so now Hawkmoon only yes, has his this dagger. this is true. Yeah. And chapter four, Valjean of Starvel. So after four days of rafting and successfully fishing, they come across a ship, a pretty Swiss ship, called the Riverhawk. And this is the ship of Valjean of Starvel. Oh, I wonder if he'll turn out to be a decent square fella. Well, let's find out. Hawkmoon and Deverk stumble into a mm. pirate movie. <laughs> All of a sudden, this travelogue becomes yeah. a pirate movie <laughs> for several chapters. In fairness, we had more pirate action in Mad God's Amulet, well, so there you go. This is a very swashbuckling tale. We've already had pirate action. So this is yet more pirate action. Oh, I forgot about that. It's a pirate movie on this occasion, though, rather than... Uh, we all got a little bit mad with um, a bit S&M the Mad God's Amulet pirate section, didn't it? Whereas <laughs> this is this is like a classic yeah, Lancaster pirate movie, this, complete with urchins that swing on ropes and hit people over the head with clubs. And they show absolutely staggering naivety <laughs> in getting themselves enslaved as Osman really fucking quickly. <laughs> it's really amazing. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Immediately. And 
So they realise that they're in trouble and they try and get away, but get caught by being bonked on the head by a swinging urchin. And I did actually think back to Mad God's Amulet at this point because the tone swings so wildly to this like Saturday morning pirate TV show where people get hit on the head by a kid with a a kosh and knocked out. I remembered the the memories of when you had the terrifying warrior women who were butchering people and then Deverk and Hartmoon just comedically wrap them all up in a net. And they're all going, grrr. <laughs> yeah, that was an odd, the, the, the last odd. T- yeah, and then proceeded to start knocking them yeah, out with their pommels. Yeah, that was the last odd turn oh, yeah. swing. But anyway, they get enslaved to the oars. That gives us an excellent Deverk moment when he says, Oh, Hawkmoon, this was not meant to be my role in life. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but uh, yeah. fortunately, there's a big river battle. Pirates take on a ship. They escape again. They take Valjean hostage, but swing an urchin kid intervenes again, and a fight ensues as the butcher load of pirates. And just when things start to look a bit dodgy, well, actually, you think that, but the dirt, the dirt look dodgy at all. Deverk and Hawkmoon are laying waste around them and butchering sailors, left, right, and centre. There's a lot, of, a lot of text here for not a lot of goings on, other than them being, as we'll find out really, really rubbish when it comes to fighting pirates. I think Hartmoon must have weakness yeah. to pirates on his character sheet and has to roll with disadvantage because the amount of time is in the middle of a fight, then gets knocked out by pirates. It becomes ridiculous by the end. It becomes comical. And this is all in the span of basically one chapter here. Yeah. All this yeah. fighting Getting fucked yeah. over by pirates. Arrive, yeah. try and make friends, get fucked over, get enslaved, escape, have a fight, get knocked out again. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's all going on. And you've got all the nautical language as well, like poop decks. Oh, it's all full on. Back to back now, Hartman and Devert yeah. held off the sailors, but it seemed they must soon expire, for more were running to join their comrades. Soon the poop was heaped with corpses, and Hawkmoon and Devert covered with cuts from a dozen blades, <laughs> their bodies all bloody. This, this is, I think this is, it's a good job they got healed as, by Zenak Tang, because they were covered in cuts and bruises before, and they're not having a, a whole lot of success here with keeping their claws intact, that's for sure. But still the thought, Hawkmoon caught a glimpse of the Lord Valjean. Lord Valjean, we don't really mention what he's like, he's, he's, he's a little bit effete, a little bit, um, he got really taken by surprise when they took him hostage he just couldn't believe it is very snooty very arrogant a bit slimy hartman caught a glimpse of the lord valjean standing by the mainmast watching from out of his deep-set eyes staring fixedly at him as if he wished to have a clear impression of his face for the rest of his life if need be hartman shuddered then returned his full attention to the attacking seamen the flat of a cutlass caught him a blow on the head and he reeled against Deverk, sending his friend off balance together they collapsed to the deck struggled to rise up still fighting hartman took one man in the stomach struck another's lowering face with his fist, heaved himself to his knees. Then suddenly the sailors stepped back, their eyes fixed to port. Hartman sprang up, Deverk with him. The sailors were watching in concern as a new ship came swimming from the cove, its white schooner-rigged sails billowing with the fresh breeze from the south, its rich black and deep blue paint all a-gleaming in the early morning sunshine, its sides lined with armed men. A rival pirate, no doubt, Deverk said, and used his advantage to cut down the nearest sailor and run for the rail of the poop. <laughs> oh, I'd never get used. I could never be a sailor. Hartman followed his example. I know. I'm sorry. I'm like, 
Hartman Folder's example and... Every time corpses are raised on the poop, blood on the poop. <laughs> you don't want blood in your poop. It's not good. And with backs pressed against the royal, they fought no. on, although half of their enemies were running down the companion way to present themselves to Lord Valjean for his orders. A voice called across the water, but it was too far away for the words to be clear. Somehow, in the confusion, Hartman heard Valjean's deep, world-weary voice speak a single word, a word containing much loathing. The word was... Buchard. Then the sailors were on them again, and Hartman felt a cutlass nick his face, turned blazing eyes on his attacker and thrust out his sword to catch him through the mouth, driving the sharp blade upwards for the brain, hearing the man scream a long, horrible scream as he died. Hartman felt no mercy, yanked his sword back and stabbed another in the heart, and thus they fought while the black and midnight blue schooner sailed closer and closer. For a moment Hartman wondered if the ship would be friend or foe. Then there was no more time for wondering, as the vengeful sailors pressed in, their heavy cutlasses rising and falling. So the Verkin Hartman, this is a chapter five, Paul, pa, Paul Bouchard, Paul Bouchard. Hartman Devert gets to be decent and heroic here, free the enslaved oarsmen before scuttling the river hawk and making friends with the master of the rival ship, who just, as is often the case with Mocock in general, but Hartman in particular, whenever they're on a sticky wicket, something always turns up to turn the tide. And in this case, it's Paul Bouchard, who's not a rival pirate. He's actually a fairly decent fella, as it turns out. Hey, my friend! You with a black gem in your forehead. Have you plans for scuttling my ship too? Hartman gotcha. turned and saw a good-looking young man, dressed all in black leather, with a high-collared bloodstained blue cloak thrown back from his shoulders, a sword in one hand and an axe in the other, raising his sword to him from the rail of the doomed galley. We're on our way. Your ship's safe from us. Stay a moment. The black-clad man leapt up and balanced himself on the river hawk's rail. I'd like to thank you for doing half our work for us. Reluctantly, Hawkman waited until the man had leapt back on his own ship and approached them along the deck. I'm Paul Bouchard, and the ship's mine. I've waited many weeks to catch the river hawk. Might not have done so had you not taken on the best part of the crew and given me time to sneak out of the cove. Aye, well, I want no further part in the quarrel between pirates. You do me a disservice, sir, Bouchard replied easily, for I'm sworn to rid the river of the pirate lords of Starville. I am their fiercest enemy. Bouchard's men were swarming back into their own ship, cutting loose the mooring ropes as they came. The river hawk swung round in the current, her stern now below the waterline. Some of the pirates left overboard, but there was no sign of Valjean. Where did their leader escape to? Deverk asked, studying the ship. He's like a rat, Bouchard answered. Doubtless he slipped away as soon as it was plain the day was lost for him. You have helped me greatly, gentlemen, for Valjean is the worst of the pirates. I am grateful. And Deverk, never at a loss where courtesy and his own interests were concerned, replied, And we are grateful to you, Captain Bouchard, for arriving when things seemed lost for us. The debt is settled, it seems. He smiled pleasantly. Bouchard inclined his head. Thank you. However, if I may make a somewhat direct statement... You seem in need of something to aid your recovery. Both of you are wounded. Your clothes are plainly not what you, as gentlemen, would normally choose to wear. I mean, in short, that I would be honoured if you would accept the hospitality of my ship's galley, such as it is, and the hospitality of my mansion when we dock. Hartman frowned thoughtfully. He had taken a liking to the young captain. And where do you plan to dock, sir? In Narlene, replied Bouchard, where I live. We were in fact travelling to Narlene before we were trapped by Valjean. Then you must certainly travel with me, if I can be of assistance. Thank you, Captain Bouchard. 
We should appreciate your aid in reaching Narleen, and perhaps on the way you'd be able to supply us with some information which we lack. Willingly. Bishad gestured through a door set beneath the poop deck. My cabin is this way, gentlemen. Well, that worked out well, didn't it? Always. Always. Work. Always. And, uh, and th there are, there's another example of this that comes up later on as well. It's the will of the rune staff. That's all it is. You know? Of course, yeah. It's a handy thing. I forget. Chapter 6 now, leader. Bard Vuchar's vessel. Hawkmoon and get not only a sumptuous feast, but Hawkmoon is set on figuring out what's what and reasserting our hero's motivation. So there's a, a long section here where they explain... Oh, sorry, where Bouchard explains what the score is in Narleen, how the pirate lords work. They live like in a city within a city. They are beholden to an ancient pirate called Batak Garandium. Anybody knows what that is? Answers on a postcard, if that actually refers to something in real life. Batak Garandium, whose sorcerer's power was said to be contained in the blade... The Sword of the Dawn. Hawkmoon asks about the Sword Ooh. of the Dawn. Ah, oh, at last, we are 111 pages into the book called The Sword of the Dawn. And I think this might be the third time the Sword there of the Dawn go. is mentioned. But we now know where it is. It's in the temple of Batak Garandium. And Batak has become a god since then, even though he was one of Valjean's ancestors. They arrive in Narleen, and they're essentially celebrated as heroes and welcomed as heroes. Thanks to Beauchamp. Beauchamp? Beauchard. Not Beauchamp. Beauchard. Uh, introducing them to the adoring crowd. And Nalene sounds pretty sweet, doesn't it? All told. Uh, bustling city. Yeah. Um, lots going on. Lots of wealth. Merchants. Taverns. All that stuff going on. We also find out a little bit about uh, the world. It's, it appears that actually Narleen is is pretty uh, pretty swish, not not massively damaged by the apocalypse. They trade two hundred or so miles in either direction down the coast with other cities that survived whatever happened, whatever you know destroyed the world, and it all looks pretty sweet. Apart from the fact that they have this city within a city run by these pirate lords who demand tithes from everybody. And Beauchard, Beauchamp, what's his fucking name? Beauchard. <laughs> Beauchard has taken it upon himself to, to take them down. But not everybody is particularly happy. Uh, in particular, all of that is encapsulated and channeled through a grumpy merchant called Veronique, who's, Ah, ah, you'll get us all in trouble. The pirate lords won't stand for this. It'll be worse for us in the end. Uh. And he's a bit of a whinger. And I expected Veronique, because he's got this introduction, to come back and have some kind of impact on things. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a bit odd, this, because he's like, and, and not only is Veronique introduced... But we also get a reference to Veronique's son as well. And I think we could probably read between the lines that Veronique's son runs off and dobs him into the pirates, but we'll get to that in a moment. But they go to Bouchard's mansion and, well, hot babe alert, Jolina Bouchard is a raven-haired, vivacious lass that Deverk instantly starts to flirt with as some fun flirty company for the evening. So, of course, what does Hawkmoon do? He sulks and moons over Yzelda and says, oh, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Even Bouchard can't cheer him up. And he tries to fuck off to bed like a misery guts. But events get in the way when a servant delivers news that Bouchard's ship is aflame at the docks. Oh, no. 
Well, it was Valjean, of course, we learn from a rider that, that throws Bouchard a message from the pirate. It includes a bill for the ship, crew, 40 slaves, and the loot aboard. And who turns up just to stick his oar in? Veronique. <laughs> Veronique turns up, so I told you, I told you, it's going to be bad for us. <laughs> that Veronique is an absolute tool. They get back to the mansion. They also yes, find from Jelena that Valjean called on her just to be a, not only to be a creep, but also to tell her to pass the message to Bouchard that he must announce the following day that he's going to cease to bother the pirates, he's going to throw down his arms, and Bouchard is totally shaken by it all. So he's a bit down in the mouth. But Hawkmoon, being a fairly stout fella, despite the fact that he's a misery guts, books him up and offers the support of himself and Deverk. And Deverk's happy to go along with this. And it's interesting in this book, I think, that Whilst in previous books, and even the Mad God's Amulet, there was always a sense that Deverk still might be a turncoat. I think this book has completely abandoned that now. Do you have any yeah. kind of sense that Deverk might still have a seed of wrong in him? Not really. He just seems more like a uh, lovable scoundrel type yeah. in this part. I mean, you know, he's just, you know, he's he's getting laid, he's getting paid, he's... Going on quests. He's just having yep. himself a good old time. And him and Hawkmoon definitely seem like genuine friends and uh, allies at this point. So it seems like all that, you know. And, oh, and also his ridiculous, ostentatious coughing seems to have stopped for the most part. It does a little bit. He, he's, he still occasionally says, oh, yeah. this isn't for me. This isn't the life for me when he's experiencing hardship. But I do think that Deverk, the character, just loses something by this point, because he's at his best when you think that he is along for the ride and is with Hartman whilst it serves his agenda, and that at yeah. any given point there could be a moment. It, it's good to keep in your mind that sense with this character that it provides a little bit more dramatic tension if there's an idea that he might still, because this, after all, is a guy who was wearing Grand Britannian armour probably three weeks ago in story time and now he's completely kind of come over. Although there is that gap where the Camargue is in no, is in the nowhere land, isn't there? So maybe there's a little bit more time elapsed than that. Um, yeah, I do love Deverk, but I do think his character suffers a little bit for him being so passive on the journey and just being Hawkmoon's foil. But it's still great. It's still great. But the fact that Hawkmoon and Deverk are willing to say to Bouchard, you know what? You've got our swords to support you if you so want them, if you want to continue on that course of action. That cheers him up. So he agrees and commits to taking them clothes shopping. Now, I think what the Hawkmoon books have really, really lacked that we get lots of in some of the other books is fantastic descriptions of a character's tasty clobber. And we get a bit. We get it has a bit been too long. It has been way too long. At last we get it. And so in chapter eight, The Walls of Starvel, this should have been called The Awesome Clobber Shop of PR, frankly. It shouldn't have been called The Walls of Starvel. <laughs> but Hartmoon, Deverk, and uh, Bouchard commit to a show of nonchalance, and they go out in taverns having lunch and being carefree, showing themselves to the people. And then they go clothes shopping in PR's, uh, I don't know, haberdashery, whatever it is, and they come across Veronique's flighty son at the same time, but he fucks off sharpish. And we can only assume that his presence in there leads to what happens very shortly. He goes and dobs them in. But 
what they do do and what they go with and what does it tell us about their sartorial tastes because on page 124 the last two paragraphs we find out what they pick off the shelves they haven't been provided with these clothes this is what they've done in this enormous clobber shop and this is what they choose so it says Hawkman and Deverk retired into the dressing rooms and Dave I think you should describe what Hawkman chooses oh my absolutely and might I add what taste Hawkman <laughs> had a shirt of silk in a deep lavender shade a jerkin of soft light colored brushed leather a scarf of purple and fine flaring breeches that were also oh, yeah. purple that matched the scarf which he knotted about his neck these breeches he tucked into boots of the same leather as the jerkin which he left unbuttoned he drew a wide leather belt around his waist and then clasped a cloak of deep blue over his shoulders oh Oh, wow. Hello. Look at that. <laughs> so, Hartman's choice of clobber, we now get to know a little bit about the man. His choice of clobber is purple silk wafters, a purple scarf, <laughs> a leather jerkin that he leaves open to show off his bare chest. Man, this guy is making a statement here. And my respect for Hartman instantly went up several notches when I pictured him in this right. get up. Yeah, and and actually, by comparison, Deverk is a little bit disappointing because Deverk had <laughs> taken for himself a scarlet shirt and matching breeches, a jerkin of shiny black leather and boots that were also of black leather and reached almost to his knees. Over this, he drew a cloak of stiff silk, coloured deep purple. Well, that's nice. I'm into his deep purple cloak. He was reaching for his sword belt when there came a shout from the shop. But before we get to that, let's talk about Deverk's choices. Before he puts his purple cloak on, right? Scarlet shirt, scarlet breeches, a jerkin of black leather, and black boots. What does he look like? He's dressed like a visitor from V. Uh, I'm not familiar with that show, but I was just thinking of Rakir the Red Archer a little bit. Our warrior yeah. priest of Foom, who's also a little bit uh, shady. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point, actually. I, I forgot to think about Rakia. I just instantly thought, you know what, after this, I'm going to find a picture of a visitor soldier and I'm going to I'm gonna send you at the aliens from V. They wear scarlet pants, scarlet tops. The soldiers have black leather jerkins and black boots. Okay, they don't have purple cloaks. But I've got to say, Hawkmoon is winning Sartorial Elegance competition, hands down. And oh, you know yeah. what? I just never saw it coming. I never saw it coming. Because quite apart from anything else, I've got to say that I'm reading this, and I know I've read this before, and I know I didn't particularly enjoy it that much. I don't remember any of this from my first read of this 25, 30 years ago. <laughs> I do not remember Sword of the Dawn turning into a Burt Lancaster pirate movie for the yeah. last third. I just have no memory of it at all. And weirdly, though, my beer choice today was surprisingly apt because and this is a, a, in a nod to our friend Clarky, who's a big fan of this brewery i'm drinking purple moose brewery dark side of the moose so wow, i'm even drinking look at that i'm even drinking purple beer so we've got Hawkmoon in his purple and lavender we've got Deverk with his purple cloak and i'm drinking purple moose dark bitter all the stars are aligning this is amazing Couldn't oh my god up. of course it all goes fucking terribly wrong because it goes instantly pear-shaped when pirates call in 
They've come for Bouchard. A fight commences. And once again, because our heroes seem to have some strange weakness to being knocked out by pirates, they're once again... A disadvantage versus pirates kicks in. They're all snake eyes. And they all end up unconscious. Oh, certainly. Hawkman and Deverk end up unconscious. And they're... Poor Deverk's brand new club... Well, both of their brand new clubber, within seconds of buying it, it's all knackered. It's, it's all absolutely isn't knackered. Isn't that always the case? Don't you hate it? You know, you finally, you pick out a nice outfit. You're like, yeah, I'm vibing. I'm feeling myself right now. And then all of a sudden, you're attacked by fucking pirates out of nowhere. You know, every time. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. I don't I, know if you I, have I this suppose... problem in, in England, but, you know, San Francisco, every time. In my world, pirates are what the, are the food I'm eating, and the and the blood is the oh, grease yeah. spots down the shirt I've just put on. Um, so yeah, I have my own problem with pirates, but it's it's like the, the grease spot pirates that completely do my clothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I did mark something to read here. Let's have a look. Don't know what's going on. Hartman wakes up. He says he awoke feeling smothered and rolled over onto his back. It was getting dark inside the shop, and it was strangely silent now. He staggered up, his sword still in his hand. The first thing he saw was Pierre's corpse sprawled near the curtains of the dressing room. Oh, no need. Poor Pierre. That's outrageous. He had such fucking great stock. The second thing he saw was what seemed to be Duvek's corpse lying stretched across the bale of orange cloth, blood covering most of his features. Hartman went to his friend, put his hand inside his jerkin, and with relief heard his heart beating. Like him, it seemed. Duverk had only been stunned. What is it about these pirates? Doubtless, the pirates had left them behind, intentionally, wanting someone to tell the citizens of Narlene what befell those who, like Pal Bouchard, offended the Lord Valjean. Hartman stumbled to the back of the shop and found a pitcher of water. He carried it back to where his friend lay and put the pitcher to Duverk's lips. Then he tore off a strip from the bale of cloth and bathed the face. The blood had come from a broad but shallow cut across the temple. Duverk began to stare, opened his eyes and looked directly into Hawkmoon's. Bouchard, we must rescue him, Hawkmoon. Hawkmoon nodded bleakly. Aye, but he isn't Star Vell by now. No one knows that, but us. If we could rescue him and bring him back, then tell the city the story, think what that could do for the citizens' morale. Very well. We shall pay a visit to Star Vell and pray that Bouchard still lives. We must climb those walls somehow, Duverk. We shall need equipment. Doubtless we'll find all we need in this shop. Come, let us move swiftly. It is already nightfall. Hockman fingered the black jewel set in his forehead. His thoughts went again to Yzelda, to Count Brass, Oladan and Burgentle, wondering about their fate. His whole impulse was to forget about Bouchard, forget about Mygan's instructions, the legendary Sword of the Dawn and the equally legendary Runestaff, to steal one of the ships from the harbour and set off across the sea to try to find his beloved. But then he sighed and straightened his back. They could not leave Bouchard to his fate. They must try to rescue him or die. He thought of the walls of Starvel that lay so close. Perhaps no one had tried to scale them before, for they were very steep and doubtless well guarded. Perhaps it could be done, however. They would have to try. Well, it turns out they do it in about one paragraph. <laughs> the channel a bit of Conan and a bit more Bert Lancaster Pirate and they climb the walls of Starvel purely by dint of daggers and upper body strength. It's a very Conan wall climb, I've got to say. Hell yeah, and they also dispatch a couple, <laughs> Yeah, and they dispatch a couple of pirates at the top for good measure. They survey the sights and sounds of Starvel and intend to find the temple wherein hangs the Sword of the Dawn, but they're interrupted 
by a macabre procession. And this is where it all gets a bit a bit hammer horror pirate movie at this point. Which is quite cool actually. I quite like all this. It's the stuff. best kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Torchlight began to flicker, and huge shadows swam into the street ahead of them. Hartman and Devek backed away into the darkness, watching as the procession began to file past. It was led by Valjean himself, his pale face stark and rigid, his eyes staring straight ahead of him as he rode a black horse through the streets towards the palace where the beacon burned. Behind him were drummers, beating out a slow, monotonous rhythm, and behind them another group of armed horsemen, all richly clad and plainly the other lords of Starvel. Their faces too were set, and they sat in their saddles as stiffly as statues, but it was that which came behind these pirate lords that chiefly caught the watcher's attention. It was Bouchard. His arms and legs were stretched out on a great frame of bent whalebone that was fixed upright upon a wheeled platform drawn by six horses led by liveried pirates. He was pale and his naked body was covered in sweat. He was evidently in great pain, but his lips were pressed grimly together. On his torso strange symbols had been painted, and there were similar markings on his cheeks. His muscles strained as he struggled to free himself from the cords biting into his ankles and wrists, but he was securely bound. Uh, that's good stuff. Very, very hammer horror. This um, this whole temple bit does have some similarities with what we read recently in the Queen of the Swords part one. We went to a weird temple where horrible things were happening to people. Very similar. And I think they were written around about the same time, so maybe Mocock was into his hammer horror at the time as well. Anyway, they follow the procession. Uh, they didn't know where the temple was, but the procession goes to the temple. Once again, convenient. Probably the rune stuff. Maybe. But inside the temple, there's a horrific scene of blood sacrifices. And just in case we haven't twigged yet, Valjean and the pirates. Definitely wrong'uns. So Hawkman and Deverk, disgusted as they see the sacrifices hung on frames, being bled into a pit of blood in which creatures writhe. Ah, uh, we'll get into it, we'll get into oh, it. And yeah. that Valjean is about to take a knife to Bouchard. So they decide, enough is enough. And they charge in. But they still have disadvantage against pirates. And again, I think this might be the third or fourth time they charge into battle with pirates and get knocked out. <laughs> it's actually Good getting Lord. a little bit ridiculous now. In, in one book, yeah, we're up there. we got to be like number five or something like that. It's getting pretty silly. It's all, it almost reminds me of uh, The Hour of the Dragon, where Conan just keeps getting knocked out and placed yeah. in these you know situations and stuff like that. And it's like, oh my God, the amount of headaches these poor people are going to be suffering for the rest of their lives. Yeah, they're going to have major concussions, aren't they, from all these pommel hits and coshes. But th this does give give us uh, a really quite hilarious line. When Hawkmoon realises he's in serious trouble, he's tried to cut Bouchard free, he's getting mobbed, he's in serious trouble, his foot slips on the edge of the pool, something touches his foot, something sinuous and disgusting, and then he finds his arms clutched by pirates. He f and you're going to have to read this because you're Hawkmoon. So the last, his last line at the end of that chapter, he flung back his head and called. I'm sorry, Bouchard, I was impetuous, but there was no time. No time. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was impetuous. And once again, I failed to come up with some strategy to deal with the fact that I just can't fucking handle pirates. God damn. 
So Hawkmoon, once again, rolls snake eyes. They're captured, stripped naked. Not only have they only had this clobber five minutes, they've now lost it altogether. <sighs> Absolutely criminal act. And they've been hung on frames alongside... Yeah, damn you! <laughs> they should send Valjean a bill for the clothes. Yeah. So they've been stripped naked, hung on frames alongside Bouchard, either side of him, and the other unfortunate people to be bled to feed the beasts below. But of course, Valjean spends about a page gloating and enjoying himself and saying he needs a sharper knife and sends one of his pirates to get him a sharper knife instead of just fucking cracking on and doing it. And then, what we haven't mentioned is the Sword of the Dawn is suspended high above this pit, this huge two-hander. And he sees that the sword is no longer high above the pit. It's descending. There's some fella holding onto it. This fella is heavily armoured. He's got a long helmet, and he's armoured in jet and gold. Oh, it's only the warrior in jet and gold, isn't it? Whose true name, I think, is probably Derek X Machina, or something like that, because he always <laughs> rocks up at these points. So Valjean is in utter despair at this. Hawkmoon could not believe it. He recognised the man, if man it was. The warrior in jet and gold. At your service said a sardonic voice from within the helm. Valjean snarled with rage and flung the knife at the warrior in jet and gold. It clattered on his armour and fell into the pool. The warrior hung by one gauntleted hand to the pommel of the Sword of the Dawn and carefully cut at the thongs holding Hawkmoon's wrists. You! You desecrate our most holy object! Valjean said unbelievingly. Why are you not punished? Our god, Batak Garandium, will have his vengeance! The sword is his. It contains his spirit. I know better, said the warrior. The sword is Hawkmoon's. The rune staff saw fit once to use your ancestor, Batak Garandian, for its purposes, giving him power over the rosy blade. But now you have lost the power, and Hawkmoon here has it. I do not understand you, Valjean said baffled. And who are you? Where do you come from? Are you? Could you be Batak Garandium? I could be. <laughs> I could be Mermit the Warrior. I could be many things. Many men. Oh, Warrior, you're such a hoop. Yeah, are you better commander him? I could be. Could be. I don't know. I'm not Maybe. telling you. It's, yeah. the, the whole scene is amazing and slightly daft in a, yeah. in a wonderful just way. Just hanging there, and cutting at things. It, yeah. And as, as he descends and he's driving Valjean to distraction with his devastating repartee, the warrior throws Hawkman his knife so he could free himself of the dudes, and we get this wonderful paragraph. And it says, um, Nonplussed by their leader's indecision, the other pirates made no move. Behind the naked trio, the warrior in jet and gold swung on the great sword, dragging it nearer to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got, just got this impression that he's just holding onto it and it's coming down really slowly. <laughs> and just like, come on. It's like, yeah. It was like, yeah. It was like, oh, oh should we attack yet? No, it's, it's not quite down yet. Oh, it's so, it's so brilliant. It's amazing. Uh, but now it's all on. And weirdly, weirdly, the fact that the warrior in Jet and Gold is hanging on it. It's, it's kind of skimmed over, but Valjean grabs the sword somehow. So Valjean's got the sword now, despite the fact that the warrior in Jet and Gold has just been hanging on it, and it's basically descending towards the pit. But anyway, it's got it. It doesn't really make any sense, but fight on. Pirates, tentacle beasts from the blood pit, 
And now we know what this bloody cover is illustrating. Naked Heartman versus Blood Pit Beasts. And even knowing the context, still not a fan of it. Yeah. At least we know what the fuck it is. Yeah. And it does mention, actually, that these are just smaller versions of the one that they fought in the river. So even though Mm. they they don't feel that threatening, they've fought a bigger one. And these yeah. are like small. Eh, anyway, the warrior shouts at Hawkmoon, "The sword is yours, Duke Hawkmoon. You must take it from Valjean." He struggles a bit, but he takes it from Valjean. And before Hawkmoon's disadvantage versus pirates can intervene again, the warrior tells Hawkmoon he must summon the Legion of the Dawn. So Hawkmoon's, "What do you mean, summon the Legion of the Dawn?" And eventually he goes, oh, "Okay, uh, I summon the Legion of the Dawn." And they're a bit weird, but very efficient, and the fight is won. And all that remains is for Hartman to say, Hooray, back to the Camargue. And for the warrior to say, Uh-oh, something, something, rune staff, something. Now go to Danark and help the city of the Greyhound once. It's like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Been through all this. Valjean, sadly, got dragged into the blood pit. He's no more. He's all done. So Hartman looks around him. He says, oh, for fuck's sake. All right, Danark. But... He has his fingers crossed behind his back because he's not convinced. Yeah, He's not convinced by all this something-something rune stuff, something still, after three yep. books, he's still trying to book his destiny. And a magical yeah. sword, word and gold. I mean, how many times this guy has to show up and save the day before Hawkmoon's just going to be like, all right, well, I'm going to do it. Yeah, so, you know, final chapter, the part in Bouchard says, you know what, you've been great pals, this has been wonderful, thanks for all your help, let's have some tucker, I'll set you up with a ship, Nalin's finest sailors have begged to sail with you, uh, good luck in your quest, and all this business. Devek coughed into his hand. If Hawkmoon is an unwilling servant of this greater destiny, then what does that make me? A great fool, perhaps. I am unwell, I have a chronically poor constitution yet find myself dragged about the world in the service of this mythical rune staff. Still, it kills time, I suppose. Hartman smiled, then turned almost anxiously to mount the gangplank of the ship. The warrior and Jet and Gold moved impatiently. Danark, Hawkmoon, you must seek the rune staff itself in Danark. Aye, I heard you, warrior. The Sword of the Dawn is needed in Danark, and you are needed to wield it. Then I shall do as you desire, warrior. Do you sail with us? I have other matters to attend to. We shall meet again, doubtless. Doubtless. Devet coughed and raised his hand. Then farewell, warrior. Thanks for your aid. Thank you for yours, replied the warrior enigmatically. Hartman gave the order for the gangplank to be raised and the oars to be unshipped. Soon the ship was pulling out of the bay and into the open sea. Hartman watched the figures of Bouchard and the warrior and Jet and Gold become smaller and smaller and smaller, and then he turned and smiled at Deverk. Well, Deverk, do you know where we are going? To Danark, I take it, Deverk replied innocently. To Europe, Deverk. I care not for this destiny I'm constantly plagued with. I wish to see my wife again. We're going to sail across the sea, Deverk. Sail for Europe. There we may use our rings to take us back to Castle Brass. I would see Iselda again. Devek said nothing, merely turned his head to look upward as the white sails billowed and the ship began to gather speed. What do you say to that, Devek? I say that it would be a welcome rest to spend some time in Castle Brass again. There's something about your tone, friend. Something a trifle sardonic. What is it? Aye, 
Aye. Maybe I'm not as sure as you, Hawkmoon, that the ship will find its way to Europe. Perhaps I have a greater respect for the rune stuff. You still believe in legends like that? Why, Amarek was supposed to be a place of godlike people. It was far from that, eh? I think you insist on the Runestaff's non-existence too much. I think your anxiety to see Zelda must influence you very strongly. Possibly. Well, Hawkmoon, time will tell us how strong the Runestaff is. Hawkmoon gave him a puzzled look and then shrugged, walking away down the deck. Deverk smiled, shaking his head as he watched his friend. Then he turned his attention to the sails, wondering privately if he would ever see Castle Brass again. The end of the Sword of the Dawn. Yeah. So, book three in the history of the Rune Staff. Yeah. So, final thoughts on book three of the history of the Rune Staff, the Sword of the Dawn. You know, it's it's definitely you know if you want blood, you've got it. It's it's action packed. It moves mm. very quickly, but ultimately there's. There, there are a lot of new kind of characters introduced, but most of them are not really very significant. You know, Janak Tang, mm. if, that, if that was his name, <laughs> I'm already forgetting him. Um, yeah. The people in um, yeah. Starvale or whatever. Um, yeah, there, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. Like, like it's, it's very action-packed. It's an entertaining second half of a book. It's, ne- it's definitely not slow at any time. But it also is just kind of like... A little bit throwaway, kind of forgettable. I mean, it's it's fun, but it's 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 yeah. nothing that's really seems very significant to the overall plot or the overall kind of you know events that are occurring in the world. It's it, it's a nice little kind of secondary adventure. You get to see different parts yeah. of Amarek. You get to kind of see what that's like. Um, the it yeah for me it it it's kind of very forgettable until we kind of actually get to the end there and in the, in the blood temple with the sword of the dawn and okay and the warriors back and yeah some of the stuff very Deus Ex Machina very on rails plot armor kind of stuff going on way too many get yeah. knocked out by pirates I mean it's just you know it, it's it, it's it's a classic <laughs> okay you get knocked over the back of the head and now oh you're another thing and you know all right but you know ultimately too like. The one thing that stuck out was just like, oh, well, the pirates clearly just wanted them to live so they could tell of the of the tale. But so they killed the boy, but they left the two guys who killed all of everybody alive. <laughs> I mean, you know, anyway, yeah. so s- some of that yeah. stuff, you know, if you, if you think too much about it, obviously, it, it kind of falls apart a little bit. But ultimately, entertaining, some fun ideas, and at least it doesn't linger too much on any of that stuff. Yeah, I... I... This is throwaway stuff, and it's definitely the case with Murkoch during this period when he's writing his trilogies or his tetralogies, whether it's Corum or Hawkmoon. There is a lack of substance, and he is, you know, he is writing these books in three days to knock them out and send them to publishers. And even as throwaway adventure stories, I still consider them to be better than, for example, Sprague Camp throwaway stories (laughs) even though i'm not hugely familiar with a lot of sprague de camp's own original work i've read a lot of his conan pastiches i have read a couple of bits and bobs of his standalone fantasy work and i do find it a a a wee bit weak yeah but there's, there's there's a problem where if you took... I really like the first half of this book. I really like all the Grand Bretagne stuff, the fact that it develops the villains. And then we get the second half of the book where 
you're absolutely correct when you talk about Zenak Teng and Co. Whilst it's interesting, whilst I really, really enjoy that chapter of Carnage and Tentacle Monsters and Strange Mind Weapons, I love that chapter as a standalone thing. But does it actually move the story forward in any way other than getting them from A to B? No. It adds nothing to the to the mythos particularly, other than to say that, you know, somewhere in Amarek there are clans who live underground. Even when it gets into when it becomes a Bert Lancaster movie uh, for the last four or five chapters, it's all perfectly serviceable, entertaining. But you could probably when you once you get to this point, and it's the same in the second Corum trilogy, yeah, with the cold folk. It's go here, get this artifact. Go here, get this other artifact. And you're introduced to things and scenarios which really are of no relevance other than to have a rollicking read for a few pages. So as a throwaway book, fine, great. It's actually better than I expected it to be from that perspective. I had fairly dim memories of it. I did I did actually quite enjoy it on that level. But if you think about the beginning of the history of the Rune Staff and the climax of the history of the Rune Staff, if you chopped out two-thirds of this book... Would it suffer? There's actually an argument to say that y- you could have an abridged version of the history of the room staff that's 250 pages long, which would be a fucking epic. Yeah. I mean, honestly, because, yeah, like all of that stuff, I mean, with all the other kind of Deus Ex Machina stuff that goes on, I mean, nobody would question it if my Gan of Landar's rings just took them right to Narlene, you know? I mean, he's yeah. a, you know, sorcerer yeah. with advanced technology that can teleport people so why why would they end up necessarily in the middle of some weird plane to be stumbled upon by these underground dwelling you know super hunks yeah. <laughs> and then have all that unfold yeah um you know yeah you probably could have just taken them right there and you know and foregone all the pirate stuff because they could have just gone right there you know maybe met uh some of the people that they meet there and then you know there it is. There's the Sword of the Dawn, and then there's the cult. Because all you know, all the cool cult and the temple stuff is 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 fun. I mean, that's just classic. You know, kind yeah. of pull good times. Um, so you know, I mean, I I like all that hmm. kind of stuff. You know, and it's well done by Moorcock, and it's yeah. fun. And uh, but yeah, I, I feel like definitely the majority of book two could have been completely cut out, <laughs> and it would have would have worked just fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I enjoyed reading it for what it was. The pirate. Sorry, the Nileen and Pirates section. I thought it's fine as a standalone story, but that could be a Steve Costigan story. You know, that that could be uh, a random Robert E. Howard story. It could be a Conan story. It is so generic. I think that's the problem with the pirate stuff. Once they leave the, the Ten camp and get aboard Valjean's ship, from that point onwards, it doesn't feel like the world anymore yeah it feels like a really generic pirates versus god-fearing folk you know the heroes get involved and it turns out that the pirates are also into dark sacrifice it's it's a it's a bit weird it's a bit it's a bit like a gothic pirate story that that feels almost a little bit more in the william hope hodgson wheelhouse yeah Conan, by way of William Hope Hodgson, I suppose. Hope Hodgson was a bit more, a bit less explicit than all this type of stuff, you know. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that's a very Weird. interesting point. Different. Yeah, it it is kind of like yeah. 
you know, it 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 it, it almost seems kind of almost more like a Howardian kind of story, but without. And and this is, I think, the thing that most, you know, kind of imitators or pastiches of Howard, you know, they always fall flat. Now, obviously, Moorcock's great, but Moorcock's great at being Moorcock. He's yeah. not necessarily great at being Howard. Yeah. So when you have, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, like the pirate stuff and everything like that, it's 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 also especially because the tone is so different. You know, it, it's Howardian without actually being Howardian. You know what I mean? Um, it doesn't have the kind of the tone yeah. or the uh, the atmosphere that Howard has. And I mean, and, and ultimately, even with the tentacle monsters, that's kind of the thing. I feel like the the language that Howard or Lovecraft or Hope Hodgson or Clark Ashton Smith, like that kind of sort of more flowery, which I love. I love that. I think it's I think mm. it's great when it's done well. Um, personally, just the the mm. atmosphere that it creates and, and all that, I think is really, really something. And Moorcock doesn't necessarily do that. So it, it kind of, mm. it just seems like I feel like this is kind of like a problem too that like a lot of like adaptations of those works have like it, it when they're put like to screen for instance it's more like a streamlined okay here's the thing here's the action why isn't it working it's because it doesn't necessarily have that same language or atmosphere built up and I don't think necessarily Moorcock is trying to do that mm-hmm. here but with those tropes I feel like those kind of tropes are served better with that sort of language and with that sort of kind of the atmosphere that's generated from it if that makes sense so yeah. when it's yeah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah, when it's just kind of like, here's the setting, here's the creatures, here's the action, go. It, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't kind of work as well as when some of those kind of older authors are doing mm-hmm. this kind of thing. You know, it's fun, mm-hmm. it's pulpy, but it's more like a D&D kind of pulpy as opposed to like the actual pulps kind of pulp. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm articulating yeah. that well enough. No, it does, it does yeah. make sense. And I'm, I'm just trying to remember, I think one of the D&D appendixes lists the history of the room staff as, as an influence. You know, I'm sure, Jeff and Hoy would know this straight off the top of the heads, so and I can't remember exactly. But I'm sure the history of the room staff is listed in one of the D&D appendix, appendices. might not be Appendix N in the first edition of D&D. I can't quite remember. And it always puzzled me that History of the Room staff, out of all the Mocock stuff, was listed. But now, having read this oh, yeah. section of the Sword of the Dawn, I'm like, yeah, this would this this would make a perfect D&D game. And it's funny thinking back, you know, we were only discussing the role-playing game aspects of Mocock on the last instalment. Of course, UI and Clarky discussed sort of sandboxing Mocock and, and, and what the Mocock-esque bits before reading this, if I joined a game and someone said I'm running a Mococky game and it was this pirate adventure, I'd be scratching my head. Yeah, this would not be what I would but be actually, thinking of. But actually, if they ran this as a game, it's absolutely 100% on-brand Mocock yeah. because we've just read it. Yeah, and, and it would be a fun game. I think game. the reason why it suffers for me, maybe, it would, it'd be great. And I think the, But I think the reason why it suffers for me ever so slightly is that Reading book two as standalone for doing this, maybe a couple of months after reading book one, which we did for the last instalment, I kind of read it as an as, as a, an all-in-one thing. Had I read this book cover to cover, I would have had whiplash. Yeah. Going from the first half, which is all that development of Grand Bretagne, to the second half, which is throw away a little bit generic pirate, entertaining though it is, I don't know. I think maybe I'm just I'm just expecting too much, but I, I could say I'm expecting too much of this book. It's throwaway pulp genre fiction, but even within the context of its own framework, reading the book from cover to cover, from book one to book two, 
it doesn't work particularly well. But I suppose if you were to read this, if you had the hardcover of all four History of the Runestaff books, and you read that cover to cover over a couple of days on holiday, this might sag a bit, but then it'll get good again. So it depends. it's all about the framework in which this sits, isn't it? Read it as a standalone, interesting, entertaining. Read it as the second half of The Sword of the Dawn, I would be disappointed. Read it as part of a massive book, The History of the Runestaff. This is a moment perhaps where it sags, where you think that could have been edited down a little bit, but on the whole... It works as part of the whole. So I suppose it all depends on the angle from which you attack it, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Maybe that's one of the weaknesses of this podcast is that we do things in bite-sized chunks. But it's not a weakness, damn it, because I enjoy it. So that's right. It. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, I I, yeah. I I can see why, you know, especially, you know, you, you were saying that, uh, you know, recollections of this book were that it was pretty weak if not the weakest in the series and yeah because i think literally over half of it is is pretty forgettable stuff especially following the the strength of the first part mm-hmm. when there when there is so much delving into these characters and again i mean you know as we were saying you know hawkmoon is not a particularly interesting protagonist but the world he inhabits is really interesting and so mm-hmm. getting more of you know Grand Britain, Meliadis, who is a very interesting character, and all that kind of stuff going on in the first half. By the time you get to this, it's action packed, sure, but like it, it's just yeah. it's it's kind of throwaway. It's not so. It's it's just it's really just not as interesting, you know. No, it's it, for me. It belongs in another yeah. book. It seems to belong to another book. All this stuff, but uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't. It is where it is, and um, we'll just have to find out next if Danark is as throwaway and uninteresting <laughs> before we actually get back to the to the Battle of the Camargue and, and the, the Battle at the Gates of Londra, which we know we've got to look forward to and we know are going to be fucking epic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this is all about the journey, yep. isn't it? And what a journey this was. This whole thing was a travelogue, this entire part two. <laughs> Thanks, Dave, for coming back to Derry and Tom's and we'll pick it up again soon with... Fuck, what's the, the last one staff. The Rune Staff. Yes. Massive thanks once again to Dave for joining me in Derry and Tom's. Dave, aka Sonus's latest album, Usurper of the Universe, is out on Bandcamp, along with debut album Worlds Undreamed Of. Get on there, check them out, and if you're in California, get on down and see them live. You can follow Dave on Twitter and Instagram at the handle at Sonus underscore rocks. After the last Sword of the Dawn episode, we had a lovely comment from Chris Neely on Podbean, who said, Thanks for transporting me back. In 1982, I was 11 years old, and my grandfather and I often stopped at a little second-hand bookstore. We made a monthly trek to visit a retired friend of his that was a chiropractor who had treated the ruptured disc in my neck with traction. The shelves of that little shop were my peaceful reward for the torture of the rack. The Sword of the Dawn was my introduction to Mocock. I read the entire book on the 100 miles or so back home and have revisited it many times. Thanks for that feedback, Chris. And thanks to Jacob, Damnation Warrior and Robert for their messages too. Over on YouTube, DJ Cthulhu commented on previous Hawkmoon episode as follows. Just googled wafters and it's bait for fishing. What the hell is Hawkmoon wearing? 
I fully understand your confusion, DJC, but wafters is old hull parlance meaning flares or pantaloons. And DJ Cthulhu also let us know that the Sheffield pub in Threads used to be his local. Incredible how parlance differs just over the course of a few miles in Yorkshire. And finally, thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear, Anthony Picanti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. And our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, Tony Milazzo, and PJ Cooper. Now, PJ, I have an apology to make. You've been a patron for a few months now, and because I'm terrible at admin, I failed to update my list and have missed you off the last few shows. So an extra special thank you to you, and an assurance that Brute of Lashmar is in the galley stewing up some of his finest pickled plumes, along with a leg of something or other that he's been maturing for a few weeks. Good luck keeping it down, but he means well. And of course, thanks to our crafty jugged heroes, Alexander Harris, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Graham Holden, and Ray Otis. And eternal thanks to our patron demons, Alistair Davison, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Janie Stim, Joe Monty, Jason Vogel, Lee Gary, Liam J, Mark Hebden. Mark, thanks so much for your reinforced vote of confidence, and I think I may have missed this too, as Mark's been with us on the Don Blast for a long time. But Mark, Rimswell Holt stopped punishing his kettle for a while to ensure me that it's popped to post office a few weeks ago to send you something. So once again, it's just my bad admin that means I've been listing you in the wrong section like a goof. And of course, thanks to Miles Riedelbato, Mark Main, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but never least, Robert McMillan. Right, enough yakking. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too. There are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Rods. All right, cool. I'm recording right now through Logic. Awesome. So Logic, is that um, 
that's like a paired up all singing, all dancing digital audio workstation. Is it Mac OS exclusive? Specific? Yeah, it's pretty much it's pretty much like their upgraded uh, GarageBand. Hmm. Um, like it's like kind of like a full suite, full mixing kind of kind of right. version of it. Uh, it's pretty nice. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I, I like it. Again, like for me, I think that the Ableton has like a better interface for editing. Yeah, but. Logic has a lot of really cool features and really good stuff, um, especially like in terms of like plugins and things that mm. it just kind of comes standard with, like a lot of like really good EQ options, things like that. So I like a lot of it um, for that. I just I fucking hate Mac controls and there's no right click. You got to press one of like the there's control, there's option, there's command. What the fuck do I press yeah. for what menu? Yeah. Ah, yeah. I'm a caveman. I don't like it. <laughs> I've, I've never got into it. I've never got yeah. into it, and I've never enjoyed that interface because I suppose 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I'm using a Windows desktop for work and for everything else. I've just yeah. never, I've just never got used to Mac OS. And, I do but, PC gaming, so uh, yes, you know, PC guy all the way. But yeah, yeah, hey. <laughs> yeah. I've um, since I've not been working for the last several weeks. I've found an incredibly therapeutic game which. Uh, two or three months ago, so I would have called myself an absolute fucking loser for getting into it. Snowrunner, which is mm. basically all about driving massive trucks around flooded landscapes in places like Michigan, Alaska, and parts of Russia, and upgrading oh, wow. your truck so you can so you can deliver metal things to factories to get them back online. It is the most ridiculously stupid yet thoroughly relaxing and graphically quite attractive. Incredibly therapeutic game, and of course now I've got the soundburger and my PreSonus monitors. I can have the computer sound out of them, and I can also have the line in, and it will play both simultaneously. Oh, there you go! I could stick a record on, and I can just trundle around and spend fifteen minutes stuck in mud and not fucking care. That's amazing. We well, <laughs> got to put on space trucking, right? Come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely. then they gotta like wind the record back. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Remix. Yeah. Damn right. <laughs> Uh, but anyway...